Let's continue praying together. Father, we praise you that you are holy and like no other and that your mercy exceeds our shortcomings. Lord, if, if either of those were not true, we would have no hope and no reason to hope. But because you are holy above all and abounding in mercy, we can have hope. And so, Lord, I pray that as we confess that our hope is in you and you alone, I pray that that would be undeniably true by our lifestyle. That we would truly depend on no other but you. Help us now as we turn to your word to be shaped, corrected, and equipped by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to let you know I'm not exceptionally sad this morning, although it sounds that way. It's just that I almost died from the common cold this week. And so uh, just know that, that I'm all right. I'm all right. Uh, I do want to let you know at risk of boasting that I am a highly efficient golfer. And here's what I mean by that. Allow me to explain. I don't go golfing very often. So when I do go golfing, I prefer to get the most out of my investment by hitting the ball more times than the people I go golfing with. I get more strokes for my dollar than most people in this room. I've one of my secrets to doing this, and I hesitate to tell you, uh, is what I do with my driver. I've been told by many who know what they're talking about that I actually have a very nice looking golf swing. They see me swing the club and they're like, oh, this is gonna be, this is, this is gonna be pretty predictable what will happen. But hidden within my golf swing, particularly with my driver, although I'm pretty good at doing this with all my clubs, no, not meaning to brag, are a few intricacies that allow the ball to defy the laws of physics. So that my ball, the first bit, you're like, oh, this is going to be really nice. In midair, it turns 90 degrees. Eliciting such comments from golfers as, I didn't know it was possible to go out of bounds on this hole. <laughs> and so that if you were to plot a map from where I stand to where the ball turned to where the ball landed, it would create an equilateral triangle. Now, I don't say this to brag, but this, this golf shot is a thing of, of mystery and wonder. Now, obviously, I'd rather be good at golf than what I've just described to you. I'd rather be able to step up, and when I hit the ball, people would say, wow, what a shot, instead of, wow, what a shot. <laughs> I'd rather not be so tired from swinging twice as many times as anyone else in the group. 
but I won't change. My golf swing and the ball trajectory that is, that is predictably and persistently awful won't change because I'm not willing to go through the cost of change on my golf swing. I'm not willing to go through the discomfort and the time and energy that it would take to move beyond my current level in a sustainable and lasting change kind of way. I'm more uncomfortable with what change would require than I am with how bad I am at golf. I want you to hold on to that thought. The book of Judges bears a lot of similarity to my golf game. And now that I say that out loud, it's not as good as it looked on paper. But here's what I mean. The mistakes are consistent, they're repeatable, and, and they're quite frankly hard to watch. And even at the top, a lot of people describe judges as this downward spiral. Even at the top of the downward spiral, it's already bad. Right away with the first judge, Othniel, in Judges 3-7, we have a pattern established. And it's a pattern that repeats over and over. And through this pattern, we see more of who God is, how he delivers us, as much as we see the depth of human sin and depravity. So let's read, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> let's read Judges 3, starting in verse 7. We're just going to read through verse 11, and then we'll, we'll get into Ehud later, which uh, I'm just going to try to stay mature enough through Ehud. I'm just warning you now. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot, their God, they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim 80 years, or eight years. Whew. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. And he went out to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And, he, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice this, notice this uh, pattern. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord, and the anger of the Lord rises up. Here it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The evil they do is that of, of Baal worship, 
not just, and it's idolatry, and all idolatry is bad, but the very act of this idolatry added sin to the sin that was already happening. It was an abomination. They would have to sin to try to get Baal and Asherah these fake deities to come together and provide fertility. And so the Lord's anger burns against them, which causes them to be ruled by someone who is wicked. And they would feel oppression, and then they would inevitably cry out, not to be confused with repentance. I haven't done it yet, but I'm, I'm going to this week, and I think I know the answer. I think my answer is going to be zero, and the, the zero comes from a word search for repentance or sin offering within the book of Judges. They're, they're missing. There's a lot of crying out, but there's not sin offerings. There's not repentance. There's not weeping over their sin. There's weeping over their consequence. This crying out is, is, is a desire to not walk in the consequence of their sin, not a desire to walk with God. And there's a big difference between not wanting to walk in consequences and wanting very much to walk with the God of heaven. Then God delivers them through a judge, and they have rest. And in this rest, they are tasting the blessings of God but ultimately, they do not turn away from their sin, but instead they turn away from God eventually and chase after lesser worship, and the cycle repeats. So Othniel sets the cycle. And what we are going to see is the recurring downward cycle reveals that in the presence of our relentless sin, God is incorruptibly holy. Look at this verse. We're, we're going to see the cycle unfold here pretty quickly. Verse 12, And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you see the double emphasis there? They again, they do what was evil. They do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So often, we thrive on sweeping things under the rug. Oh, it's water under the bridge. And we pretend it doesn't exist. We leave sin unresolved, much to the detriment of our relationships. To the contrary, God does not look the other way. Indeed, he cannot. If sin exists, it has to be dealt with. It absolutely has to be dealt with. The people of Israel are his people. They are to reflect the God of heaven to the world. So when they chase after gods, when they participate in injustice and become indistinguishable from the world, they drag his name into it. 
but God is incorruptibly holy. His holiness cannot be corrupted. Now, this doesn't simply mean that, that God is, is immune to our peer pressure. None of you are at risk of, of sinning, and then when you pray to God about it, and you're like, but God, all the cool kids are doing it. And he's like, oh, you're right. And then he joins you. That's not going to happen. But this incorruptible holiness means that when sin enters the presence of the holiness of God, that sin is consumed by God's justice. That God reacts to sin in a way that wipes out that sin. which is really bad news when we sin and act as though it's fine. When we go about living our lives as our flesh wants to, with not a thought of repentance, God's holiness becomes really bad news. God loves us too much to aid and abed in our sin. His anger over and the consequences in sin steer us, hopefully, to the joy of life with God. The Lord will always, even in the midst of his anger, even in the midst of discipline, the Lord will always move us in the direction of covenant faithfulness and joy. But due to the destructive nature of sin, the first few steps can be pretty rough and pretty painful. And this recurring downward cycle revealed in the presence of our relentless sin reveals that God is incorruptibly holy and that he is completely sovereign. <coughs> Excuse me, I am so sorry for this. The Bible is not at all shy about the fact that God is the God of the world who made himself known through one man and his family and then eventually through one nation. And he made himself known to the whole world through this one single nation, but he is still God of the whole world even as he makes himself known through one tiny nation. And he is sovereign over all the other nations. Commentator Davis, who I told you about a couple weeks ago, says, no one wears the political pants of history unless Yahweh issues them to him. Isn't that great? No one wears the political pants of history unless Yahweh issues them to him. And so they've sinned against the Lord. And the Lord raised up Eglon, king of Moab, Look at the text here. Raises up Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Here's the Lord's anger against Israel, just like in Othniel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Moving on. And he, Eglon, gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites, and they went out to defeat and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon King of Moab, 18 years. God, as the Lord of Israel, holds all 
the rights of Israel. He holds every single right. He, he sells them to Kishon Rishathaim. He gives them over to Eglon. He rises up Eglon. Just as he rises up delivers, he will rise up the discipline. And here he's, in these two stories, he's, he's handed them over to some pretty bad guys. I don't know if you guys noticed, but it seems like the writer of Judges either wanted to make future English speakers really struggle over the name Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and so he said it ad nauseum, or the Hebrew hearers would have gotten something out of the name Kushan Rishathaim, and they actually they would have. His name was Kushan. Rishathaim is a nickname, meaning doubly evil. So you hear this. Kushan, the doubly evil king of Mesopotamia. Kushan, they, they, they served Kushan, the doubly evil king, for eight years. And they just keep sneaking it in that he's this doubly evil king. And then Eglon appears to be a nickname of sorts. Fattened calf. We'll get into his fat in a little bit, as will Ehud's dagger. But he is this one part Eglon is this one part fattened calf and one part dimwit. Each king, each opposing ruler, not just these two but the others, are brutal on the people of God. The oppression of the people stands as a warning to those tempted by the flesh to just chase after selfish desires, to chase after worship that appears more fun, appears maybe more effective, to stop trusting the Lord, to stop loving the Lord. It's a warning of what it is to be ruled by our flesh. And it is an outright shame for the redeemed people of God to be ruled by those our sin and flesh will naturally lead us to. The sovereign God loves us too much to allow for that. And here we have quite the picture with Eglon. He calls in others they defeat Israel. And then Eglon, as we're going to see, demands tribute. Give me all your food so that I can sit, sit in my roof chamber and eat it and get fat off the land and make you suffer and look down on you all the way. Here, the people of God, descendants of freed slaves, are in captivity again, in their own land, serving a wicked king, sending him their food while their children go hungry. And after 18 years, they cry out. And they cry out to a God who's, who's continually gracious, persistently gracious, He's not just completely sovereign, but he would be persistently gracious. The people of Israel, verse 15, cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, 
son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. The again that starts this section in verse 12, that they again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, should sadden us and frighten us. And amidst that, they cry out. There's this plea, Lord, help us. This cry seems to be for physical deliverance and not spiritual salvation. Davis says that they were moved more by their distress than their captivity or their depravity. But as much as that again shocks us, the greater thing that shocks us is that God still listens to them. As much as I may be relentless in my sin, God is persistently gracious with me. And his persistence outlasts me. And it outlasts you. Now this crying out and God hearing and raising to deliver, I want to argue this is not a formula. This is grace. It's not a way of manipulating God into getting out of what I don't want to go through. It is God responding in a way that I do not deserve. Oh, he's persistently gracious. The most amazing thing in Judges is not Gideon's victory with 300 men over Midian. It's not Samson's strength. The most amazing thing in in Judges is that God continually hears his people. That he continually responds with grace. If you feel trapped in a habitual sin, and you want out, but you don't know how that's going to happen, I want you to start with the confidence that God is more gracious than you are sinful. He hears you, and he will do his work in your life. Crying out to the Lord is a confident risk. You can be sure he will hear you. But you have no control over the methods he will use to sanctify you. But even in that, you can trust that he is good. Because not only is he incorruptibly holy, completely sovereign, and persistently gracious, but he is also uniquely able to save And we get to this, this, here's the story, we got to read it. Then the people of Israel cried out, verse 15, to the Lord, and the Lord raised them up a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, the left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute to him, 
by him to Eglon, king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it to his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, and he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and dung came out. Yeah. Then Ehud went into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came and when they saw the doors of the roof chambers were locked, they thought, well, surely he's leaving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened the door, and there, the, their Lord, there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped into Syrah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And they went down after him. They seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was, sub, was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. This deliverance is unlikely. This is a very unlikely deliverance. This, now, you got to know, if you feel bad for laughing, I think that's part of the point of the text. You don't have to feel bad. I adjure you like me to embrace that inner junior higher that's just screaming to be let out with this text. Ehud was a very unlikely judge. His name literally means, where is the splendor? Where is the glory? Can you imagine that? What kind of dad did Ehud have? That Ehud's born. They're like, what's his name going to be? They're like, ah, geez, there's just not much to look at here. Let's name him, where's the glory? And then he's a Benjaminite. Benjamin, son of my right hand. But he's a left-handed son of my right hand. 
And there's a couple theories to this. One theory is that maybe his right hand was handicapped. So he's this inglorious, handicapped servant. Another theory is that Benjaminites were were known for being right-handed, but training very skillfully to be able to be ambidextrous and use their left hand. And they would intentionally bind their right hand to do everything with their left hand so they could do both. Ehud's pretty crafty. I'm thinking it might be the second in his case. But either way, he's pretty unlikely. He's portrayed as one who would be overlooked despite his craft and ability. Few, especially those outside of his clan, would have seen him as a threat. He's seemingly invisible, but he's mightily necessary. He is an understated deliverer. I don't think this is the gospel connection, but it sure reminds me of my Savior who grew up like a dry root out of the ground. And no one took notice of him. But he was the most powerful deliverer of all time. So there is this unlikely deliverance, and then there is this dramatic deliverance. Ehud, he has... He's taking the tribute, but it's not Ehud with a bag of groceries. It's Ehud leading people, carrying all the food and money to Eglon. And they present the tribute, and then as they're walking, they get to the idols at Gilgal. This was a little bit of a landmark, but remember, this happens right in front of the idols. And Ehud says, you guys go on. I got a secret message for the king. So Ehud comes back to the king. They're like, oh, he's back, but he didn't bring a tribute. And Ehud appeals to the overwhelming pride of Eglon. He says, oh, God has a message for you. And indeed, God did. A message that went right to the gut of the matter. We've only just begun, guys. Went right to it. And Eglon, so confident in himself and so overlooking Ehud, thinks, well, this guy just brought me a tribute. Surely there's nothing wrong. He has the sword on the right thigh, and a right-handed person would have the sword over here. So when they do the, the TSA check of Moab, they look over here. They don't see a sword. Well, he's good. He comes walking in, maybe with a limp, because there's a sword strapped to his leg that he's concealing. Can't be too comfortable to walk. He's going. He goes, I have a message just for you from God. And Eglon goes, well, I'm a pretty hefty guy. I think I can handle myself. I know how to throw my weight around. He sends everyone out. Ehud is not, or not Ehud, Eglon is not especially smart, and his guard do not seem to be much higher on the academic scale. And so Ehud comes right up to him, puts the sword in. This is a cubit, this is like 18 inches. Puts the sword in, the whole thing fits inside Ehud, or Eglon. He lets go, the sword stays in there, the fat closes over, dung comes out. This is not a pretty sight. He ruins the cool roof chamber. Cool, obviously, for temperature, although it's fun to imagine he had a pinball machine in his cool roof chamber. The dung comes out, 
Ehud slips out, locks the door. When the guards come back, they're like, whew, whew. They can smell it. Eglon's at it again. Apparently, Eglon had a reputation. And these guards, they're waiting a long time. They're waiting to the point of embarrassment. I imagine neither one of them wanting to be the guy to go in and help clean up whatever just happened. It's going to be messy in there. And this is certainly a messy deliverance. The fat and the blood and the dung. And it's funny. And it's written to be funny. But then when they realize what's happened, Ehud is long gone. And in fact, Ehud is on his way to sound the trumpet that leads to this really powerful deliverance that not only did they take out the fat king, but they took out 10,000 able-bodied Moabites. It's one thing to beat a king who's dumb and out of shape, but to take down 10,000 able-bodied soldiers and to have rest for 80 years. God is so creative and exciting in how he saves us. Salvation is dramatic. Sanctification is messy and it's beautiful. And as we read this and we, we struggle to find, like, am I, am I allowed to be immature as I read this? Because I really want to be immature as I read this. What we really need to see is that the Lord gets his hands dirty to care for us. This is the opposite of a distant God. He comes into our circumstances and works. And he works a powerful deliverance. But he also works this exceptional deliverance. So we look past the colorful nature of what happens here. There's an important lesson for us. Remember, where did, where did Ehud tell his traveling party, I got to go back. Right in front of the idols. And then, Ehud escaped while they delayed, while they're trying to figure out how embarrassing is this, I don't want to clean up that mess. Eglon's at it again. He passes beyond the idols. And it could have said the boundary marker, but it says the idols. Eglon's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and that pun is fully intended. But Ehud has to trick him and the guards. As dim-witted as they are, and as much as we lack, laugh at their lack of observational skill, Ehud had to trick the king. He had to trick the guards. He walks right by the idols. He turns around at the idols. I'm going to go kill your king. And you know what those idols did for Eglon? Not a dang thing. Because they didn't care about him. They never heard his cries. They never answered a single prayer of his. They never moved on his behalf. Because they were idols. And they weren't able to. And the people of Israel are throwing themselves after every idol they can. Meanwhile, the God of heaven who hears their cries constantly 
and answers their prayers is waiting for them to call out to him. And how much and how often do we give ourselves to our flesh, give ourselves to the value systems of the world, give ourselves to the solutions of the world, Thinking, I know Proverbs talks about this. I know there's wisdom, God's word says, in acting a certain way, but I want results now. And I'm going to act in a capitalistic, materialistic, get my own way, dog eat dog fashion. And I'm going to chase after what the world says the ultimate treasure is. Those treasures. Do not love you back. Those treasures cannot deliver you. God loves you. God loved you first. And God, through Jesus Christ, is your deliverer. Our God offers a unique salvation. Unique not just in its nature, but unique in the fact that there's literally no other salvation apart from him. So why look elsewhere? After this, the land had rest for 80 years. After such a deliverance, shouldn't the land have rest for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? But it doesn't. It only has rest for 80 years. There was an end point to the rest. After him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, he also saved Israel. I want you to think back to my horrible golf swing. I'm not going to change my golf swing because I don't want to deal with the cost of changing my golf swing. If you're walking in this cycle of sin and you can see the downward nature of it, I want you to know that the Lord wants to deliver you out of that. But part of that deliverance is going to take you being more uncomfortable with your sin and staying the way you are than the change that repentance will bring. Would you, would you see the ugliness and foolishness of continuing to do the same thing over and over and going further down? Would you see the ugliness and the foolishness of that? And would you trust the Lord, the Lord who cares for you, the Lord who sends a deliverer? And would you do more than cry out? Would you repent? Letting him be the one that rescues us. Let's pray. Father God, you are infinitely better than we could ever ask or imagine or deserve. You are such a good, mighty God. And Lord, we pray that you would do this work. Lord, would you make us uncomfortable with our cycles of sin? Would you make us uncomfortable with our cycles of not trusting you? Make us uncomfortable enough that we're not willing to stay there. 
but that we would cry out to you, not just in, in hoping to be delivered from a consequence, but, but in the, the sure hope that you will change our hearts and change our minds and change our lives. You're a good God, and we turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.